I think sometimes they're not so aware of the differences between like in-app advertising versus like in-game advertising. So I think that's a misconception because some people might say like in-game advertising is very intrusive. You know, a banner that's like in the background of your game is not the same as an interstitial that's like popping up between rounds of a game. That's Lena Wangfang, Senior Director of Inventory at StackAdapt, our sponsor on this episode of the Digiday podcast. Later in the show, Custom talks with Lena and Omar Fazal, Senior Manager of Inventory Solutions, also at StackAdapt, about in-game advertising, the misconceptions surrounding the space, the types of ads available, and where the space is headed. Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. So Tim, you had the interview this week and you had Ray Chow, who is the SVP and general manager of audio and digital video at Fox Media on as your guest. And curious why you wanted to have him on this week. Yeah, so two things. One, um, Vox Media expanded his purview uh, in December of last year to include digital video. Previously, he was you know, focused specifically on audio. Um, and I generally like to wait a little bit before talking to people after they get like a new job or like a significant new role. So they have kind of some time to get their feet in the wax um, and we can talk about how things are going. But then also like Vox has been pushing on the podcast side more and more into subscriptions. We had the interview with Marty Moe and Preet Bharara when they acquired Cafe Studios about two years ago. Um, so it's also, you know, great opportunity to kind of hear how the podcast subscription business is going over there. Right. And what did he kind of get into? Um, I'm sure you guys talk a lot more about subscriptions in much more detail, but like, what are some of the top line takeaways you got from him? Yeah, so they've got tens of thousands of paying podcast subscribers at the moment. That was wow. that was the closest to a hard number I could get out of them. But that's, you know, something. Um, and I think it sounds like a good number of those are on the cafe insider side, so the cafe studios side of things. But we really we get really deep into how they're kind of going about acquiring podcast subscribers because like they just launched a new um, podcast with Esther Apparel. Um where they're going to be like making that available through ad Apple Podcasts um, subscription program. And so as much as Vox Media is prioritizing direct subscriber acquisition, um, it, there it's also not closing the door to third-party um, subscriber acquisition opportunities. And so we get into kind of the thinking there and the trade-offs, um, the pros and cons of both of those routes and why to, you know, why it can make sense for a publisher like Box Media to do both as opposed to it being more of a zero-sum situation. Got it. All right. Well, I'm eager to hear more from your guys' conversation. I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Caleb. Ray Chow, welcome to the DJ Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Ray, you joined Vox Media about two years ago and have been GM of audio. And then December of last year, your role got expanded to also overseeing digital video content. At this point, given that you're like more than half a year into the expanded role, how are you organizing your time between work on the audio side and work on the video side? Yeah, don't have a... a a great clean answer for you other than trying to pack in as much as I can into my schedule. Um, there's 
I would say at this point right now here at Vox Media, um, the audio business and the digital video business are pretty separate. We have separate editorial teams. We have separate monetization efforts. We have separate um, marketing and audience development work. So uh, I would say right now my time is pretty much split down the middle where I'm spending a good chunk of my day doing podcast and audio work and a good chunk of my day on video work. And and sometimes when we think about, for example, a broader go-to-market sales strategy, a broader monetization strategy, um, we can kill two birds with one stone and, and, and do it um, at the same time. Um, but for the most part, because the editorial products are separate, um, they are pretty separate uh, work streams. Got it. So given that, like, what's the rationale between behind then having someone in your position overseeing both? I would say um, we've, over the last, and, and this predates me joining Vox Media, over the last several years of building the podcast business, we've learned a ton about how, and this is, I would say, boring internal org charty stuff. Oh, we love that stuff, stuff here. That's interesting to the Digiday audience. Um, you know, just to take a step back, Vox Media is an umbrella home to a lot of different types of media brands and franchises, and we cover all these different consumer passion points. And on the audio side, we have shows ranging from Pivot, hosted by Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, to Today Explained, hosted by Sean Ramos for him and Noel King, and Criminal, hosted by Phoebe Judge, and, and you know several dozen more. And what we've spent the last several years doing is building the right internal I would say, line of business support structure to help make the podcast network grow and function and operate. And, you know, we have separate editorial teams, we have separate podcast production teams, but we have a common business model and a common audience growth strategy and a common monetization strategy. And that has taught us a lot about how we as a company, as Fox Media, and again, being just a a platform for all of these different types of shows, how we organize to support those shows, which are really different editorially, um, but, you know, have a common business model. And on the video side, before I took on the video work, um, you know, we've had, we have separate, again, similar to podcasts, we have separate editorial teams, we have different shows and franchises, we have teams, um, I would say, working in parallel uh, on their own tracks. And, we want to take what we've learned from the audio business of building a central line of business and a central team to help grow audience and grow revenue um, and bring that muscle to the video side. Okay. So how much of is of the, I guess, long-term vision is to bring more of the audio and video businesses closer together as opposed to just kind of take what you all have instituted on the audio side and applying that to video, but keeping them separate? Yeah, the goal is not to combine them into, you know, one big audio video <laughs> business. I know that people, there's a lot of headlines about um, videos, the new audio, or, you know, a lot of podcasts are moving to video or, or pivoting to video. Um, for us, it's much more the latter of what you said, which is, you know, we want to have the same operational structure and same business model support these two separate editorial products. And there's going to be opportunities, and there are already opportunities in our portfolio where audio and video overlap. Um, and there's a few examples I, I can call out. Um, MMA Hour is uh, hosted by Ariel Hawani. He's the leading MMA journalist. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, certainly, the, you know, a leading voice and, and if not the most influential voice in combat sports. 
He has a live YouTube show that we take and also upload as a podcast. There's a big video audience and a big podcast audience. And so, you know, there's other examples, you know, I could, I'm not going to list all of them, but there's other examples where there is some overlap, but for the most part, um, you know, they are going to be separate editorial products. Got it. And then talk about the Oregon, the audio side of things. So as you mentioned, from what it sounds like, correct me if I'm misunderstanding, each show basically has like their editorial team, like a dedicated editorial team. So most likely the host, maybe researcher or writer, and then like a dedicated producer or production team. But then there's a centralized, it sounds like sales and marketing team that works across all of the different shows. Yeah, we we operate in a hub and spoke model where the hub is our central business team handles sales, marketing, business development, um, to the extent we're doing MMA or new content acquisition, partnerships, um, working with talent to develop a new show. All of that stuff is centralized across the company. And then the spokes are, you know, editorial teams that are making Today Explained, making Criminal, making Stay Tuned with Preet. Um, and across the several dozen shows in our portfolio, you know, we have dedicated editorial teams. And for the most part, you know, there isn't a lot of blending of, you know, there's a producer working on the Daily News podcast and they also plug into our narrative crime storytelling podcast, um, you know, we're running those editorial teams separately and, and in large part because they're really separate editorial products. Mm. And probably separate skill sets or helpful to have people with specialty skill sets. Often special skill sets, often, you know, different production workflows and calendars. And again, I recognize it's boring org charty stuff, but that's, you know, we, I think we've found the hub and spoke models to really work for you know, Vox Media's business. And and again, you know, just being the platform for these different brands and franchises, our goal is to build one team that can support all of those different brands and franchises, but those brands and franchises don't have to overlap or be the same or, or go after the same audience. Got it. And then, because you all have a lot of, I guess what I'd describe as evergreen shows, kind of always on shows, but if I'm not mistaken, there are some shows that are more seasonal in nature. Um, maybe this is more maybe on the narrative side of things. So when those shows aren't in season, do the producers or the hosts, like kind of that dedicated team, do they move on to other shows or is there kind of an off season where they're prepared? It's not really an off season. They're preparing for the next season. Yeah, I would say the vast majority of our shows are always on. So we don't deal with that um, challenge. Um, and then for for the shows that are seasonal in nature, you know, it just depends on on that show. So, um, you know, we have a show called Land of the Giants. It's seasonal. We put out, you know, under, I would say this year, we're going to publish three seasons of that show. Three seasons, eight episodes each, 24 episodes. Like that team is working year round to actually get those shows, uh, that show produced and, and those episodes published. Um, so even though the active release is only, let's call it, you know, uh, eight times three, 24 ep- weeks a year, um, you know, we're producing that all year round. But that that's, I would say that's, you know, uh, 
most of our shows are always on so we don't face that type of the production imbalance of like you you know you're making stuff over here and then you're producing you're publishing it um a few weeks later got it and is that the primary strategy moving forward because i feel like maybe a few years ago it felt like there was this trend of like the pop-up podcast a pop a podcast that would pop up knock out five episodes and then basically go away or maybe in the future turn into an anthology but i don't feel like I've really been hearing about that kind of thing as much in a while. Yeah, I think um, we're not guiding our strategy based on, you know, we only want always on or we only want seasonal podcasts. Um, But I think there's two things that are true about always on podcasts. One is that the business model is a little bit more predictable, having, you know, publishing once a week, twice a week, every day, um, that gives us a predictability in the schedule um, and doesn't subject the show to some of the, I would say, revenue volatility of, you know, you might release, let's say, two seasons a year and you have a ton of revenue in November, December and and no revenue January, February, March. Um, And the second thing is, you know, we all know podcasts are habits. They're part of our lives in a habit. You wake up in the morning and and you're getting ready. You listen to a daily news podcast. You're commuting to work and you might want to listen to um, Kara Swisher interview you know, someone on her podcast on with Kara Swisher. And so um, that habit is something that we've really observed in our audience. And we want to cultivate that by bringing our shows in an always on cadence. Um, and we've seen a lot of success in audience growth following that strategy. And you all have a good amount of shows at this point in the portfolio. Like, I think when I was preparing for this episode, what I was able to find is 59 active shows as of, I think that was April. What's the count currently? Yeah, there's there isn't a lot of change from that last number that you cited. I think you're you were probably looking at PodTrack, um, which is an industry ranker. Uh, which, by the way, this morning announced we're number nine in the industry in terms of our total audience reach across the U.S., um, which we're really proud about. Um, What's the yeah, number there are, on the reach? I'm not gonna be able to remember it off the top of my head. I believe it's somewhere between six and seven million monthly uniques reached in the US. Um, and then our global number, you know, in terms of total monthly uniques is is roughly 10, um, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood. So that's pretty sizable international audience then. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think as a lot of pub- podcast publishers have um, experienced, the majority of their audience is in the US. Um, but uh, there's there's definitely healthy demand in other countries. And is that something you all are actively trying to seize on the international opportunity? I would say our, in general, our content strategy isn't guided by, you know, we want to go after this audience segment. We really want to go after people between the ages of X and Y in this particular country or geography. Um, and we're really focused on making a great show that is distinctive, that stands out, that's differentiated, um, that we're really proud of, and that is influential and and um, helps you know drive conversation. Um, and so, uh, it's not something that we really think about at the point of coming up with new shows or thinking about where we want to grow and expand. Got it. And how do you see monetization compare between like U.S. listenership and? Outside the U.S. listenership, is it for each dollar in the U.S. it's a dollar internationally, or is it something more like it's twenty-five cents internationally? Yeah, I'll, candidly, I'll say that I'm not going to, and by I'm not, you know, Vox Media is not going to be the expert on 
monetizing and international ad sales, I would say that uh, the majority of Vox Media's advertising business is in the U.S. and focused on the U.S. You know, we have um, a number of folks in our revenue uh, on our revenue team who focus on international sales, but it's it's not the bulk of our focus. So uh, you'll you'll have to ask someone else on the podcast uh, about how international and U.S. audiences compare. Fair enough. Yeah, no worries. Uh, our senior media reporter, Sarah Guadalione, is working on a story about international podcasts, uh, like companies like iHeart kind of trying to pull the lever internationally. So it's it's kind of in my head uh, heading into this conversation. Any, any interesting insights? Anything we should be t- taking um, away from that piece? So far, it just sounds like there's an opportunity there, but I feel like in some cases... There's always an opportunity with international, and and I think there's definitely an opportunity when it comes to the audience. What sounds like is unclear at the moment is what the monetization opportunity is or how proportional the monetization opportunity is, because it seems like the U.S., as is often the case, is where the cash cow is at the moment. Um, we definitely see that in like the streaming space, for example, where you have a lot of streaming companies looking internationally, but when it comes to the advertising um, revenue, at least internationally, that's not quite there. Right. Yeah. I mean, our advertising is focused on the US. What, I'll, what I will say is, you know, we are excited about and, and have um, done a good amount in the podcast subscription space. And that's, you know, an area where we are monetizing the international audience um and we're we're continuing to learn about that and so whether a podcast is 60% US or 80% US um you know our subscription strategy is a global one and anyone in in a lot of different countries they can subscribe to you know Cafe Insider uh which is Preet Bharara's paid podcast subscription or Criminal Plus which is the one we launched uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, we I mean we had Preet on a couple of years ago, I guess. That's right. Shortly yeah. after right after that the acquisition, acquisition which was basically Vox Media's foray into subscription-based podcast and as you mentioned you've that's continued. You also have a new show with Esther Peril where I believe an Apple podcast subscription is part of the strategy there. So people can pay to subscribe to listen to that podcast through the Apple podcast app. Is that right? That's right. And so what's the pitch there? Like what's the price of that subscription? What do people get in exchange for paying for that subscription? Yeah. So um, the Esther Perel's podcast subscription product um, is an interesting one because uh I would say, by and l- just generally in the podcast space, you, you know, you can distribute a subscription directly to your customers on your website, or you can go through Apple Podcasts. And and with this Dare Perel, the the choice has been to go directly through Apple Podcasts. So um, it's built into the Apple Podcasts app. And if you pay, I'm going to get the price wrong, so I'm not going to say it. Um, but if you pay uh, for the subscription through Apple Podcasts, you get bonus content, there's exclusive episodes, and you get episodes ad-free. With that, how did you all think about packaging that up? Like, I'll, I'll again, cite Sarah, because she's our uh, lead podcast reporter, um, but she did a piece maybe a month or so ago where she was talking to a lot of podcast publishers, and they were making the case that they're seeing bonus content having more of a sway in terms of getting paid subscribers than ad-free listening, or at least ad-free listening alone. Yeah. I think um, uh, maybe I'll speak about Cafe Insider just because we have more sure. data and more more 
uh, more of a track record there and, and a more a stronger understanding of of what's driving um, um, customer behavior. And, and bonus content is really the I would say the number one driver that we've seen in our experience of um, getting someone to pay for a podcast subscription product. But when I say bonus content, it's not here's five minutes from an interview from the cutting room floor. <laughs> That's some stuff that we thought wasn't good enough to make it into the main episode, but you're a super fan, so you might be interested <laughs> in it. It's actually programming the bonus content in a really intentional way and providing, I would say, um, an editorial product with its own value. It's not just extra stuff that you didn't get from the interview, but you know you actually can articulate why you're going to listen to this extra episode every week, every month, whatever cadence you want to publish that in. So for Cafe Insider, you know the the strategy there is that the free main podcast that Preet Bharara publishes is um, an interview show uh, about you know brings in thought leaders and, and luminaries and, and and some people who are experts in the in in some of the biggest issues of our time and he interviews them and you know and, and has a really in-depth conversation about those issues the bonus or and I, I don't even use we don't even use the word bonus because it's I would say bonus makes it sound like it's extended content from the interview show but the exclusive content for cafe insiders is a weekly chat show with Preet Bharara and his friend Joyce Vance, who was the U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama. And the two of them talk about and break down the biggest legal stories of the week. It's a completely separate podcast that we know that if you listen to Preet's main podcast, you're going to be excited and interested in this. But it's actually, in some ways, an entirely different show. Got it. And how do you kind of qualify the success of that and especially like as you're launching new subscription podcast or you know adding more you know new subscription options to existing podcasts figuring out okay what are the subscriber only perks that we can provide that would actually move the needle or people would you know be willing to pay for or continue to pay for your question is how we measure success yeah, like with something like that, if it's a you know subscriber exclusive podcast, then obviously I, I would think one metric you could kind of gauge on okay, is this a worthwhile undertaking for Preet? Would be what percentage of Cafe Insider subscribers listen to that podcast on a weekly basis or each month? I don't. Is that the metric that you use to gauge? Yeah, we're, like, we're looking at. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, um, good. We're, we're looking at conversion rates. We're looking at um, if you're thinking about how to differentiate between the different benefits that you might offer in a subscription product, you know, we're running surveys of our subscriber base and understanding what are they most excited about, um, less excited about. And of course, we're looking at listening data uh, and email data to understand, you know, organically what are people more or less interested in. Um, I would say the, the two other things that we would look at are one, qualitative listener feedback. Um, we get uh, we have a really engaged audience on a lot of our shows and, and people take the time to write in and give us feedback and thoughts and, and ask questions and give suggestions. And so, you know, we read all of those emails. And then we also think about what the editorial team is excited about. I think one of the benefits 
Um, or, you know, when we think about Cafe Insider, recording that Cafe Insider podcast and preparing for it is something that pre the host is really actually, you know, organically excited about and interested in doing. And it's not something that, um, uh, you know, doesn't feel natural or doesn't feel like it fits into the um, the brand of the show and, and what Preet's interested in. And so I think it one of the, I would say, metrics of success for us is, is the editorial team excited about this product? Is it a good experience to put and pr- put together and produce? And then, you know, what kind of feedback are we getting from our audience, both qualitative through listener feedback and then quantitative through data we can look at from, you know, listening data or subscriber conversion data. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause the reason I'm curious is it makes perfect sense. Like, you know, start with like, what would Preet and his team be excited about putting together? But then I would imagine ultimately this is all a business. So, and people's time is valuable. And so at some point you have to be looking like, okay, is this actually a worthwhile undertaking? Is it a worthwhile use of time? Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the benefits of, you know, the way, you know, we're in the subscription and consumer revenue business for the long term. So we can test and learn. You know, we launched Criminal Plus a few weeks ago. Um, We're offering their um, exclusive content, um, exclusive community through, you know, quarterly live events. Um, We're offering ad-free of the main episodes that you can find if you're not a subscriber. And we're also providing um, either a discount or free merch for people, depending on what tier that, you know, you opt in on. And, you know, we're in it for the long term. So as we launch that and get feedback and, and look at data from the website and from conversion and from email, we may adjust the offering and say, hey, people love the exclusive episode. We should do more of that. Or people aren't really engaging with this other benefit. Maybe we should sunset that. And so we're, you know, we're going to evolve and and test and learn as we go. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back. I'm Christina Ko, Senior Editor at Custom, Digiday Media's in-house agency. In this podcast, Interstitial Story, sponsored by StackAdapt, we speak with Lena Wangfang, the company's Senior Director of Inventory, and Omar Fazal, Senior Manager of Inventory Solutions, also at StackAdapt, about in-game advertising, the misconceptions surrounding the space, the types of ads available, and where the space is headed. I think there's still like the pretty outdated notion that it's like a teenage boy, you know, playing at their parents' house when that's not the case, right? Especially for casual games. I used to work at um, a mobile gaming publisher. Most of our players were female. So a lot of them were like moms in their 30s and 40s, which is really the key demographic for a lot of advertisers. And I think if you are kind of just stuck in the mindset that it's going to be like a 15-year-old playing at his parents' house, you may be more hesitant to, you know, engage with um, in-game advertising, but um, not the case, generally speaking. Even our sales team, um, I think sometimes they're not so aware of the differences between like in-app advertising versus like in-game advertising. So I think that's a misconception because some people might say like in-game advertising is very intrusive. You know, a banner that's like in the background of your game is not the same as an interstitial that's like popping up between rounds of a game. 
In addition to gaming audiences being more expansive than what advertisers were previously used to, there's an important distinction as to what qualifies as an actual in-game ad. Omar Fazal, Senior Manager of Inventory Solutions at StackAdapt, dives into the specific types of these ads and the benefits of each. The first one is your traditional in-app advertising. You know, basically these are interstitial ads or rewarded video ads that play in between uh, breaks in a, in a game when you're playing a game or in between levels. And then if you watch a rewarded video, you get some free freebies and, you know, you get to level up or something like that. Uh, but that's not what um, intrinsic in-game is. Intrinsic in-game is, uh, you know, ads that run in the gameplay. They are a seamless part of the game's 3D environment. The biggest benefit of that is that it is non-intrusive, you know, uh, simply put, it's just uh, when you're playing a game, uh, the thing that gamers hate the most is that being interrupted when you're playing a game and then you have to watch an ad or click on an ad. And, but, you know, there are people who maybe actually, you know, find those ads valuable, you know, if they're uh, properly targeted and if they actually feel like those ads are relevant for them. I think that format has its own pros and it is particularly valuable for uh, lower funnel outcomes. But then in-game, intrinsic in-game with non non-clickable, non-intrusive type advertising is a very powerful upper funnel tactic with the ability to tie into your lower funnel objectives. While in-app ads serve a purpose, they should not be confused with in-game ads, which are inherently non-intrusive. In-game ads come in many formats, though when looking for those that can be delivered programmatically, there are some restrictions advertisers need to consider. There is like custom execution like having a logo on a jersey of a you know soccer player in a FIFA game. Again, that's not programmatically available. There are those, you know, exclusive formats, uh, but programmatic is limited to just whatever the standard IAB formats are. There is uh, display, there is video. With Meta and the Apple Vision Pro and everything, I definitely see like the concept of gaming changing a lot uh, from console to like VR gaming. And when you talk about VR gaming, I think for advertising, you know, and in-game, that's something that I think is going to become pretty big pretty soon. You've been listening to Omar Fazal, Senior Manager of Inventory Solutions, and Lena Wongfang, Senior Director of Inventory at StackAdapt, our sponsor on this episode. And now back to the Digiday podcast. On the subscriber acquisition front, there are kind of two main pathways. There's getting subscribers to sign up directly, in which case then you have that direct relationship with them. You also get you know, more first party data that way that you can then use to kind of inform that strategy. Also, I would think be able to use that for ad sales purposes, attribution, things of that sort. But it can be probably more challenging to get those people to sign up directly than going through a third party like an Apple who has a built in customer base. Probably those customers have credit cards already on file with Apple, so a lot easier for them to sign up. But then you don't have that direct relationship. You also, I would think, aren't getting the same amount of data. What are you seeing as the trade-offs between the different routes you all are taking so far and the experiments you're doing? Yeah. Right now, we're prioritizing going direct to our customers. Um, we think it's really important to build that direct relationship with our listeners. And and it's not, it's not you know, 
it's not about so we can get the data and look at it, but I, but I think it's we want to to have that and own that direct relationship with that customer and make sure we're not relying on an intermediary um, that is going to prevent us from communicating with that person or that person from communicating with us. Um, you know, there there's as just as a qualitative example when you sign up through Apple and you might have questions or you have there's there's troubleshooting and and you might email us and say hey I have a question about my subscription or I want to cancel it or I want to do something um we can't help you because we're not owning that customer experience um so I would say first and foremost our priority is to build a direct relationship with the customer now it's early days for podcast subscriptions and we have a really good and and um a really great partnership with Apple Podcasts on a lot of different fronts. And we are currently offering, you can sign up for cafe exclusive content through Apple. Um, so, you know, we're not choosing one or the other, we're doing both. Um, but our priority is to build a direct relationship with a customer. But I think it's not lost on us that the UI UX experience is superior when you have a podcast app that, you know, yeah, like you said, you already have a credit card on file. It's built into the phone. Uh, you don't have to go somewhere else and get kicked from the app to your email to a website. Like you can do it all in one place. That's a really neat experience. Um, and that's why we're excited to work with Apple on a lot of different fronts. So if, Having the direct subscriber relationship is the priority. Why even do the Apple route? Because, you know, the Apple having that option even available could be lead me to go, oh, well, I'm just going to go th as a listener. I'm just going to go through Apple, even though I have the option of going directly. I'm not going to take that option. Therefore, you know, uh, it could lead to a world in which your your priority of Vox Media may be the direct subscriber relationships. But the majority of your subscribers may be through a third party because that option's been available. Yeah, I think I'll say it's early days, and and you know we uh, we're we're doing this in a few podcast subscription products in a few different areas, but you know we have plans to do much more. So we'll hopefully, if we talk in a few years, we'll have a lot more to share in terms of those trade offs. But what I will say is the we think Apple Podcasts is a great way to capture, I would say, lower propensity subscribers, people who, you know, are fans of the show and really want to subscribe. But the, the pain of having to go to a website and sign up and put in your email and then go to check your email and get a <laughs> link and upload. There's a, there's this whole painful, candidly, it's a painful process in order to get access to that bonus content. And Apple has built a great seamless way to sign up for, um, a podcast subscription product. And one thing that we're exploring is, should we actually create different products for those different experiences and focus the Apple podcast route on capturing lower propensity subscribers and focus our direct podcast subscription product on our most loyal super fans who want to not just hear exclusive content, but they want to show up at virtual events. They want to come to our live shows and get benefits. They want to get access to exclusive merch, or they want to get a free tote bag. Um, and so, you know, it's still, I'll just qualify everything by saying it's early days, but that's one, I would say, early thought that we're having about how to work directly and how to work with Apple. And, and as part of that, um, with Cafe in particular, 
we actually rebranded our Apple podcast subscription for Cafe as Cafe Audio Pass. And it's not, what we're saying is this is different from Cafe Insider. You get actually more stuff when you sign up for Cafe Insider on our website because we can send you exclusive email newsletters. But if you sign up through Apple, we can't find, we don't know what your email address is, so you're not going to get access to that content. So we're starting to create, I would say, a two-tiered, you know, product approach. Got it. What do Cafe Audio Pass members get? So because they're subscribing um, through the Apple podcast uh, app, they're essentially just getting access to the exclusive content. Okay. Do they get ad-free listening too, or is it no. just the ex- Okay. Got it. And are you looking at that as something of a template, at least, you know, to start when you're looking at others for this two-tier system of, for a third party, like, you know, an Apple podcast, it'll be exclusive content for direct subscribers. They get kind of the kitchen sink of everything we can offer them. I think that's what, uh, we don't have this strategy etched in stone and, Mm -hmm. you know, this is what we're going to do for everyone. I think it's an early learning for us is how do we work with both paths and maximize our consumer revenue business and engage, you know, more of our subscribers. We just know that there are listeners out there who are not willing to go through, you know, signing up on the website and doing all that stuff, but they are willing to sign up through Apple. And so we want to figure out, is there something we can do that, you know, satisfies and serves those customers? Right. And it seems smart to still have the incentive for people who would be so inclined to sign up directly as opposed to, well, if it's going to be the same for me either way, I'm just going to exactly. do whatever's easiest for me. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, interesting. How many paid podcast subscribers do you have at this point? Uh, so we're not going to share data publicly. What we, we've said before, uh, and I'll say on this podcast, is that Cafe Insider has tens of thousands of active paying subscribers. Um, it's a business that, uh, uh, as you mentioned, we, we acquired Cafe um, a few, two, a little over two, two years, years ago. ago yeah. um, and uh, we've learned a ton from just uh, operating that business over the last two plus years. And, um, and they have a really active and engaged subscriber base. Got it. Okay. So subscribers across all the podcasts, probably in the thousands then. Cafe Insider has tens of thousands of active paying subscribers. Um, we're now, you know, we recently launched Criminal Plus, which we've, we're really excited about the traction we've seen so far. So I would say we have tens of thousands of active paying podcast subscribers. Okay. So what is that? Five figures then? Five figures. Five figures. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And then in, while we're talking about numbers, so you all have, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter story where I saw this kind of set a goal for this year, more than 500 million podcast downloads. Um, for April, you all had 33.3 million podcast downloads for the month. How are you pacing towards that 500 million plus download goal? We're feeling pretty good about it. Um, we're we're only halfway through the year, and uh, I think we feel really uh, confident that we're going to hit that goal. And is that something that's evenly distributed where you're at the like 250 million, 300 million mark right now? Or do you, is it more you're at the 150 million mark and, you know, the bulk of the rest is going to come in the second half of this year, maybe even like a Q4 thing? Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't have the exact number of where we are today in front of me, um, but what I will say, it's it's relatively evenly distributed across the year. I think we're projecting second half to be 
more than the first half, but it's 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 a you know it's not a significant difference in our okay. pacing. Got it. Yeah, because I remember like when I was reading that story and saw thirty three point three million for April, and I kind of extrapolated that across the year. I was just like, well, that's not going to get them there if if that's their average for each month. Yeah. No, I mean, we, again, we have by our internal pacing and our benchmarks, we feel really good about our ability to get to half a billion downloads this year. Got any particular levers that you'd be pulling for that? Because I don't imagine it's just, we're just going to launch a bunch more shows because it feels like the podcast market is pretty, I would say oversaturated at this point in terms of the number of shows. Yeah, there's there's a variety of things that are happening in the second half. Um, you know, I mentioned Land of the Giants, which is our seasonal show. We're we're launching two seasons of that show in the second half. Um, one about Tesla and one about Twitter. Uh, okay. <laughs> the must and, double feature. You know, so that's that's one. I mean, and, and I'm not going to get into specific di- differences, but um, you know, another show that we. I mentioned we relaunched today is Esther Perel's Where Should We Begin? Um, that show is back and going to be publishing weekly starting today. So, you know, that's a that's another show that's going to be in our portfolio in the second half um, and uh, more to come. Got it. And on that point of like how saturated the market is, have you seen any trends where listenership is either ebbing or listener growth has slowed? No. Um, honestly for us, I mean, our audience is going to be up year over year and, and we're, we're continuing to grow our audience. So that's not something that we're seeing. Why do you say obviously for us? I say obviously because we're, we're growing in our own, not just our goals, but what we're seeing in our data, we're growing year over year. So, um, <laughs> because Tim, I wouldn't be doing this interview if we were growing <laughs> right now. <laughs> No, no, I, I meant, I meant obviously like because I can see our audience data and I know that we're growing year over year. And, and I think, um, you know, candidly, I think a lot of the conversation about the, you know, podcast industry and uh, is really centered around, you know, big companies throwing big celebrities, big checks. And that's, that's not, not really so much what, anymore, <laughs> but that, but that's the change that's happening year over year. But when you look at, you know, actual listenership audience, you know, if you, and, and I'm, there's tons of these studies out there about how the podcast audience is continuing to grow year over year as more and more people shift from, you know, linear terrestrial radio to digital on-demand podcasts. Um, we're going to benefit from that broader macro shift. Got it. What about on the, the business side? How's podcast revenue trending right now? Um, I think we feel good about where we're at. I think we're not, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the ad market. We're not immune from those challenges. Um, we, you know, we, we, uh, but at the end of the day, we're in the podcast business for the long run. And we've set up the business in a way that it's going to be healthy, you know, through all of the, um, I would say cyclicality of the ad market. Um, you know, we're in a specific part of the cycle today. That's going to change uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, our focus is really to keep our heads down and execute and do a good job of what we're good at, which is making great shows and reaching and engaging our audience and monetizing it. And uh, and once we get out of this cycle, we're going to continue to benefit from the broader macro industry trend of growing podcast listenership and um, ad spending. 
Got it. Is podcast ad revenue for you up or down year over year? Not going to get into commenting on specific uh, numbers or year over year trends there. Okay. Because, I mean, it seems like as much as getting into podcast subscriptions seems smart and like having diversified revenue seems smart, it also seems like the kind of thing that can be really valuable and, and valuable to kind of throw a bit of extra fuel on the fire right now, given the ad market, especially because the podcast ad market is growing. I think like every forecast that I've seen for this year, like the IB forecast um, is kind of projecting podcast ad revenue to be up when Sarah Guadalione, I'll keep citing her, talks with the buyers. They're saying podcast ad spending for their clients is going to be up. But because there are so many podcasts out there, it feels like that money is getting spread a bit where individual you know shows revenue may be you know flattening or even you know declining because the money's getting and even like Spotify for example they as you kind of alluded to they're one of the ones who have been spending a lot of money on these exclusive shows they're getting out of those shows and it seems like they're adopting more of a YouTube type strategy an ad network type strategy let's just be the distributor for a bunch of different shows we'll sell the ads and everyone gets a cut which means there's going to be less money making it to each individual podcaster. Yeah, I think our our, you know, uh, the strategy of revenue diversification for us is not born out of this particular moment in the cycle. I mean, I was um I was on stage at uh, the Digiday Publishing Summit with your colleague Kaylee a little over a year ago talking about our our franchise strategy for Fox Media Podcast Network. This was at a different time in the ad market, but at the end of the like our podcast strategy since then and and has continues to be building great shows and franchises, primarily monetizing that or or at least initially monetizing that through advertising and then building, incubating and building and growing um, adjacent businesses off of that franchise that can be subscriptions, that could be newsletters, that could be social, that could be merch and brand licensing. There's all these different, you know, revenue streams we can build from the podcast franchise. And that's been our strategy since day one, and, and you know, I obviously, you know, we recently launched a podcast subscription product, so I can see how people might associate the timing of investment in subscriptions with the ad market um, challenges. But but for us, it's it's actually much more of a one additional step in a longer term strategy as we build a diversified revenue model for audio. And how do you manage the investment going into podcasts, given like? the revenue, the ad revenue challenges at the moment, you know, I think the entire media industry is in something of a cost cutting exercise right now. Vox Media hasn't been immune to layoffs. There are, you know, layoffs back in January, if I'm not mistaken. And so as you're growing this business, but as, you know, the revenue is in a growth stage, but, you know, some of that growth may face more headwinds than others, you know, areas how do you manage costs? To what extent are you investing more money into the business versus trying to keep the budget where it's at at the moment? Yeah, I think um, the the key for us has been setting up all of our investments from day one to be um, smart and uh, ROI positive investments. And we've, again, from my first day at Vox Media, we've built this business with an eye towards profitability it's not just a word that we learned in 2023, but we've focused on it since I joined this company, uh, and and before obviously when before I joined this company, 
And, uh, you know, we shared a few months ago in that Hollywood Reporter piece that that audio is a profitable business for us. And and still by, profitable business today. And by setting by setting ourselves up from day one for audio to be a profitable business and not be a loss leader to do all sorts of other stuff. But, you know, for us to run audio as a standalone business, um, that set ourselves, that set us up for, you know, in this year to be able to weather a lot of those challenges. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, for, for some other companies and, you know, not going to name names, but I don't think that every company in the audio industry has invested in content with that in mind. Um, and that's of course, going back to your question, that's when, you know, con investment in content starts to come under scrutiny when, you know, that that's not a margin positive dollar that's spent. Um, so for, for us, it's, it, I think it's a little bit different for us than for other folks who've talked about these challenges in this current market. Got it. And so you mentioned at the time of that Hollywood Reporter story, the podcast business was profitable. I know that story didn't come out that long ago, but <laughs> still profitable today. Yes. And, and so, yeah, we're, we're, uh, I'm not, I don't want to get into, uh, looking at different periods of time and an answering that question, but yes, that, that, that is what we shared then. And, and that's still true. Got it. Okay. I guess kind of given that you're splitting your roles between audio and podcast, but you know, obviously you've been doing the audio job for longer. We spent a lot of time um, talking about audio and I don't think we have near too much time to really talk about video, but I'll just kind of end with your seven months into this expanded purview where you're overseeing digital video content. How has Vox, because Vox has been doing digital video for a decade, better since, more than yeah, a decade. Since, since the early, early days of this company. But what's new or what's different about Vox's approach, Vox Media's approach to digital video today compared to you know when you took that role in December of late last year? Yeah. So I think, as you mentioned, we've been in digital video for a really long time, since the early days of the company. And what we've spent over that decade plus building is really great shows and franchises that reach a large and loyal audience. And we're really proud of, you know, the, uh, you know, across um, on YouTube specifically, you know, almost 60 million subscribers to our many different channels. Um, last year we did 5 billion views on YouTube. Um, you know, we're doing, you know, more than that across, if you add up other places, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook. Um, and so what we started to do under, you know, my new expanded role was look at the video business and think about how we should run it as a central line of business across the company. Again, historically, that's been um, a, a lot of different editorial teams, different spokes on the wheel, producing great content, reaching a great large and loyal audience. And my focus is really building that hub in that hub and spoke model and think about how we come to the our advertising clients with a central narrative around this is why you should buy video from us. We reach, you know, something like 68 million monthly uniques across all of our video offerings across the company. We're getting a billion views every single month across all these platforms. You know, we have millions and millions, tens of millions of followers and subscribers on all these different platforms. We have a lot of the scale 
that advertisers are looking for. And we have brand safe, high quality, lean back, episodic content that people are looking to put their advertising next to. And so, um, you know, a lot of my focus has been making sure that we're offering a consistent and cohesive monetization strategy across our video business, um, that we are offering the same ad products and we're offering the right ad products, um, that we're going to advertisers and are telling the story across the whole company. We're not just talking about Eater and their, you know, three, four million YouTube subscribers and all the hits that they make. But we're also talking about Secret Base and Pop Sugar Fitness and the Dodo and Vox and The Verge and, you know, the list goes on. And so I think across, if we look uh, across the whole company and the whole video portfolio, we're so proud of the work we put out every day and the audience that we have. And now the next step is building a business model to go and support that. Okay. Is the video business profitable today? Not going to comment on that. Okay. Well, you commented on the audio, so maybe that says something. I think we're not ready to comment on video. I mean, it's still, I would say, you know, I'm, you know, it's not to blame it on me being new, but yeah, I get to say I'm the new guy. Um, hey, you're seven uh, months in. in. I don't know how long. I don't know what the <laughs> on the video side, so I'm the new guy. But 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 I think you know we're still. I think there's, you know, again, not to go back to a boring internal org charty question, but there's a question about you know there's so many different ways you can monetize a video business. A lot of people talk about using video to sell brand and content, mm-hmm. and then. And again, boring org chart finance question, but do you count branded content revenue as video revenue for your video teams? Um, we're also selling video sponsorships, um, and that certainly is video revenue. So I think part of my hedging on that question is like, I think, you know, you want to, I think we as a company want to be thoughtful about what is the revenue model that we have to support digital video. It's a crazy time. There's tons of change from a platform perspective, from consumer behavior, and from advertisers. We believe in digital video as a long-term opportunity for our business and for our audience and for our editorial teams. And so we're investing in building the internal structure to support that and make sure we can keep that going um, and sustainable, make it sustainable, and also have it be a growing, thriving um part of our business that we continue to invest in. Right, yeah, because you guys take some big swings, especially lately on the video front. Like, you know, The Verge just had the Lisa half-hour documentary like a month or two ago. The Lisa doc, and then there's there's lots of other fun video projects that are coming down the pike that um, we'll, we'll make sure to tell you about. Um, but, you know, we're, we're making big swings, and, you know, our what I've said to every editorial team, every executive producer is – you know, your job is to focus on making great content, building really powerful franchises that reach a large and loyal audience. And it's up to us to, you know, make sure we're building the business model to support that. And uh, that's really what we spent a lot of our time doing over the last few months. Okay, awesome. We'll have to catch up again, you know, in a few months or year or so, see how things are going. But Ray, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's great talking with you. Great to talk to you, Tim. And thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.